Uh, This morning, we continue our sermon series in Genesis. Last week, we saw how God's rest is the pattern for our rhythmic cycle of rest. And this morning, uh, before I read the passage, I want to first offer a a qualifier on this particular passage. Uh, The 14 verses that I'm about to read that I've chosen for the basis of this sermon I want to acknowledge on the front end, do not break nicely into a passage all on their own. Commentators generally take verses 4 to 25 of chapter 2 as one whole passage. And as a general rule, as a preacher, I prefer to actually prepare and preach a sermon on a specific individual whole passage, as the biblical authors indicate. But here's the thing, (laughs) Uh, the biblical authors, surprise, surprise, don't always have modern day three-point sermons in mind when they are writing uh, their biblical text. And uh, because verses 18 to 25 of chapter 2 contain a substantial amount of stuff to glean about relationships and community and singleness and marriage I believe it, needs, it deserves to be set apart on its own. So that leaves us with the 14 verses in between last week and next week. So what that leaves us with is a less than tidy and focused passage with a very clear centralized theme. <laughs> so in full disclosure, I'm admitting that on the front end. <laughs> Nevertheless, I do believe we will st- still see some concepts and ideas reverberate here that we've already seen in chapter 1. And in the end, I hope we'll still be able to see that I still think there is an underlying theme that undergirds this section and even points us ahead to future revelation about God's work in his world. So with that introduction in mind, we follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 2. Verses 4 to 17. This is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And Delium and Onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God then took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we, we come now to this, your word. All of us coming in from different backgrounds, different stages of life, different states of mentality, different stages of faith. Perhaps there are even some among us that have not yet, would not yet say we have crossed over that line to faith in Jesus as our Savior and as our King and as our Redeemer. Father, however we find ourselves this morning, would you help us to see that there is one thing we all have in common this morning? Despite any of the differences, all the differences, the myriad ways that we come in here from different places, the one thing we have in common is at the end of the day, we're all a bigger mess than we even know. Certainly a bigger mess than we're willing to let on. And yet, at the very same time, what your word reveals to us, that when you see us in all of our sin, all of our complexity as human beings, all of our puzzlement, all of our confusion, all of our sadness, all of our joy, all of our celebration. When you see all of that, your response is not to cut and run, but you move into the complexity, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the fallenness of our lives in order to redeem us. Jesus May this time, as we interact with your word, be a reminder and a reacquaintance with that reality that you love us that much, that even your word, this text that you have given us this morning, is part of your grace to bring us to yourself and to know you more deeply and profoundly as our Savior and King. Help us to see and believe that more today, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I... Confession, I absolutely hate moving. I don't know if there's anybody really that loves moving, but I despise moving. I think at one point in our marriage, Jen and I, we had counted up that we had moved, we're not even the military, but we had moved 12 times in 14 years. I know at least some of you have actually gone through that recently. <laughs> the feeling is acute. The difficulty, the, uh, the bad taste in your mouth from <laughs> having to go through a move. My latest move, if you could call it that, into my apartment <clears throat> here in the Palm Bay area, my now home away from home, is now officially complete after my last drive back to New York and back. I was able to bring back some pictures and prints that now hang on the wall in my apartment, which remind me of home. <laughs> it feels more like 
home, seeing these familiar items around me every day. You know, in any move, however large or small, we push through the chaos and the disorganization. <laughs> we go through the effort to unpack the boxes and organize things. We do all of that in order to make the space livable and dwellable. The purpose of bringing order out of that chaos when that moving truck has just dumped everything off and pulled out of the driveway, the goal is to make a home where life is done and experienced and where life and fellowship is actually shared with others. That's the goal. You push through the order and the chaos to get to that. (laughs) Now, in the ancient world, nations, peoples, constructed temples or homes for their gods, their deities... And believe that their God, upon completion of the temple, would actually come and live and dwell there. There are general yet distinct patterns to this process that have been documented, in fact, that many biblical scholars, when they read Genesis 1 and 2, see elements of what looks like temple building right here. In other words, the entire cosmos that God has made The bringing the order out of the chaos, out of the tohu vabohu, was not simply to make himself a trophy that he could pat himself on the back for achieving. Rather, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God was intent on making and organizing a place that he would live and dwell and even share life with those he would make, other beings. And at the end of the day, there's, there's no reason from man, human's perspective or justification for why the triune God of all eternity that we're introduced to in the Bible should create anything at all. We've alluded this, to this before, but God creates, he must have created out of his sheer grace and kindness. God wasn't bored. God wasn't simply looking for something to do to pass the time. He wasn't angry. He wasn't lonely. He didn't simply need someone to talk to or even bark orders to or subject to his bidding. No, God desired to create a space that he could share the fellowship and communion and love he had enjoyed within the triune Godhead from all eternity with others, with you, with me. And so he creates image bearers, creatures that he can love and be in relationship with. And then he creates a place for them to dwell, and a place that he can dwell as well with them, a place that's full of order and beauty and inherent goodness. And this reality becomes even clearer in this passage before us. First of all, it gets reinforced by something that we see for the very first time in Genesis, which becomes an important theme throughout the rest of the Bible. 
It shows up here the first time. Certainly, it would have stood out to the original audience when they heard it. That is how God himself was addressed. For the very first time, the author uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. That's what all the, that's what the capital, all capitals in Lord in your Bible is. It signifies the word, his covenant name, Yahweh. That's his personal name. That's the name he uses specifically in relationship with his people. Until our passage this morning, the word Moses had used to describe God was Elohim. 99% of the time in your Bible, when you see the word God in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is behind that is Elohim. And so thus far, in the beginning, Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, God saw, God blessed. For the first time, we hear in verse 4, chapter 2, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That is, in the day that Yahweh made the earth and the heavens. As the author is about to tell us more details about God's creation of humanity, it tells us something unique about humanity's relationship with God. It wasn't some foreign, faraway, distant deity that's purposefully involved in making humanity. It is Israel's faithful and covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. This God is a relatable God. This God is a knowable God. He wants to be known. This God will reveal himself in a way that other beings can genuinely be in relationship with him. It is Elohim, God, who puts the stars in place, but it's Yahweh who takes special interest in making humanity. But the uniqueness of God's relationship with humanity is further seen in the details of how God goes about making the first human altogether. We already saw in chapter one that God took a special interest in. And we get a sense of collaboration within the Godhead when we are told that God said, let us make man in our image. Then we saw even furthermore that each day God would finish looking back at what he had done and he would see, he would observe it's good. But after creating Humanity in his image, he looked back and he said, he upsizes his celebration and says, it is very good. But the Genesis author is not done promoting the glory and the wonder of humanity. For here we see that God is actually tactilely involved in man's creation. Moses tells us that Yahweh literally put his hands into the earth, into the dust of the ground to shape and to form the first human being. All other creatures were made, came into existence by God simply speaking. God has that power and capacity. It's beyond our capacity to comprehend. But here and now, he communicates something more about his relationship and his connection with humanity by actually creating his image bearer by something more than merely his speech and his words. In fact, the word the verb used here for formed is the same word that describes what potters do with a block of clay. As they get their hands dirty in the process of forming and shaping and creating something, a vessel of beauty and of value and of 
worth. God's creativity and work and forming and shaping this first human is like a cosmic potter. But there's even more here. God not only shapes this man out of dust, he actually breathes life into him. God's image bearers are given life by the very life-giving spirit of God himself. And the author is careful to point out that it is when, by God breathing life into him, that is when this man became a living being. Again, all the other creatures, all the rest of creation were created by God speaking. But humanity is given life by the very hands and breath of Yahweh himself. Once again, the attention given to the creation and the identity of humanity is staggering. (laughs) And it's actually unique. I would make the case this morning to every other philosophy or religion of the ancient world or any cultures since. Now, verses 10 to 14, we get a, a, a brief excursus where we are given a specific, very specific image, detailed image of some of the specific beauty in the area of Eden, including rivers and descriptions of areas that were apparently known to the Israelites and the other and the ancient Eastern world for their gold and for their precious stones and gems, all things that reiterate the wonder and the beauty and the inherent goodness of this world. But then we're told in verse 15 that God, that Yahweh put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. Yahweh formed, shaped, breathed life in, And then took and put and placed him into the garden to work it and to keep it. Remember the temple building of the ancient world I alluded to earlier? (laughs) Interesting enough, interestingly enough, the last thing that would happen before it was believed the deity would come and live in the temple was that an image of that God would be formed and erected and then brought and put within or placed within the temple, often within a garden area in that temple. People wanted to know what the God they were worshiping looked like. And that's exactly what we see here God doing. God places his images. This is why God is so forceful with his people banning them, telling them, do not create, do not make a graven image. Don't build anything else to represent me. He takes that very seriously because God is saying, I've already created my image. (laughs) But before he, but more than just putting them, putting him there. God gives his image bearer a calling. Man was to continue to develop and cultivate what God had already created. He was called to develop it 
and also to keep it. That language there is, is, is to guard and to protect, to watch over it. It was humanity's job to serve as God's vice regents, in other words. You and I, as God's image bearers, are called to interact with this world as God's agents, as Yahweh's representatives, to benevolently and justly rule in such a way that further exhibits the beauty and the glory of God and resist simply exploiting and abusing that which God has called good. Now, we will get there in a few weeks. (laughs) Chapter 3 is on the horizon. (laughs) We haven't yet seen the entrance of sin and humanity's rebellion against our good creator yet. But nevertheless, this vocation of God's image bearers And the inherent goodness of creation that we are to engage and to keep and to even enjoy in God's presence and celebrate him as the creator, the gift giver, still remains even this side of what we call the fall. Yes, this world has been marred. It's been fractured. But God still cares about aesthetics and beauty. God has never dismissed the inherent beauty and goodness of that which he has created. And therefore, to this day, we actually honor and bring glory to God when we rightfully enjoy what he has made out of gratitude and in worship of the creator behind the goodness of this world. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament at one point, Paul actually had to address and even condemn some teaching that was prominent in much of the Greek philosophy of his day that had begun to seep into the early church. That is that this material world is bad. (laughs) And what really matters, in fact, the only thing that really matters is the spiritual world. Physical world, bad. Spiritual world, good. In his first letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul uses some of his most severe language to respond to this coming into the church. There he says, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything God has created, even Paul can say, this side of the fall, when engaged in with thanksgiving, with gratitude to the creator who has made it, not making that into the ultimate (laughs) fulfillment and satisfaction, but enjoying the gifts of this good creation God has made. That is to be encouraged and not rejected. (laughs) Now there's one more element to this passage that we need to quickly address before we start to come to a close. What about those trees? (laughs) What about those trees in the garden? There are literally dozens and dozens, I'm sure, of speculations I've had these conversations, these speculative conversations with my own boys 
about why God would even put this tree in the garden to begin with (laughs) and to attach a prohibition. The author doesn't tell us. The author doesn't speculate, doesn't encourage us to speculate. He's simply recounting the events as they are. But that's not to say we can't say anything about why these trees might be there and what the function, purpose they serve. Because we actually see the covenant relationship get established between God and this first human with the presence of these two two trees and the prohibition against eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How do we see that? (laughs) How is that? Think about this. Every relationship that you are in, that you can define, I would make the case, has recognizable boundaries. There are limitations that actually define the relationship. There are boundaries that make this a relationship in a way that this is not. Think about it. In marriage, the vows that we take to our spouses to forsake all others, a boundary, is actually what establishes the relationship. In the legal world, it's the contract, it's that document, and all the boundaries that, is defined, that are defined there for doing business that actually establishes the relationship between the two entities. In other words, boundaries don't hinder or negate relationships. Boundaries are actually what establish them. They're what you, how you know a relationship actually exists. And so by God introducing this prohibition, he was establishing to humanity that he would be God to them. He would be their God. He was initiating the relationship. He was putting boundaries on it. He was establishing their, we could say, covenant relationship. Hosea actually looks back and actually refers to a covenant here in Genesis, even though the word doesn't actually appear. These trees, therefore, and even the prohibition created by it actually establish the relationship. And so a very tangible and daily way that these first, our first human parents could celebrate and express gratitude to God for his abundance as their creator, as their covenant God was to simply avoid eating from just one tree and enjoy the bounty of all the others. So every time they looked at that one tree, they could be reminded, look at all that we have. Look how generous our God is because we have access to all of this. Again, we know it's coming. Genesis 3 is on the horizon. But I've intentionally set out on this sermon series with the goal to kind of, I've sought to kind of keep us in Genesis 1 and 2 for a a bit of an extended period of time. Because I believe it benefits us to be reminded of what we have gleaned here. You see, in much teaching often in the world of Christianity, I have found, I think, sometimes it seems as if 
our Bibles actually are missing the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. Or at least they don't seem to be that relevant to my life now. But that's to completely miss the fact that these bookends to Scripture are the introduction and the conclusion to God's grand story. And think about it. If you skip an introduction in a book that you're sitting down to read, or you don't finish and read the conclusion, you would most certainly at best misunderstand, if not misread, the plot in between. And sometimes, unfortunately, that actually can happen in some Christian teaching. Often we limit God's redemption and salvation. Stay with me on this. To simply... A message that people are to believe so that they can avoid going to hell when they die. That's it. That's the message. And as significant as that is, don't hear what I'm not saying, eternal judgment that awaits those who spurn God's mercy is certainly ominous. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if that's the core of what people hear from our message then we have greatly truncated the grand scope of what God is doing between Genesis 4 and Revelation 20 in and through his son Jesus. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1. In Colossians 1 verse 20, Paul makes a sweeping claim about what God is doing through his son Jesus. After describing Jesus as the one who is behind all of creation, the one who has put all things together, the one to whom all things hold together, Paul then says that God was through him, through Jesus, reconciling to himself all things. (laughs) All things. And then there's Genesis language inserted right there, whether on earth or in heaven. That's Genesis 1 and 2 language. Making peace by the blood of his cross. How big is the scope of God's redemptive work of salvation? It encompasses everything. Whether on earth or in heaven. God's redemption is cosmic in scope. And so Genesis 1 and 2 introduces us to the place that God intended to be and to dwell with his people in perfect communion and tells us of its beauty and glory and wonder. It further tells us several ways that God's proud of what he has made and how he takes pride in it multiple times. It is good. It is good. It is very good. But after sin enters the picture in Genesis 3... Genesis 4 to Revelation 20 is not plan B. It's God going out of his way to get plan A back on track. It's the story of how God is reconciling all things to himself, making peace through the blood of the cross. It's why the last two chapters of Revelation demonstrate why Christianity is unique from every other religion because there we see God in heaven finally coming down to earth so that God might fully and finally dwell with his people for all eternity. That's been his goal from the very beginning. He wants to be with his people. He wants to be with you. He wants you to know his immediate presence as your creator, and now as your redeemer. Every other religion is about humanity, how humanity can work their way to God. (laughs) 
But the gospel is that God goes out of his way to come to you. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? That God wants to be with you. That God so loved the world that he didn't abandon it. He gave his son. That Jesus came and loves and is seeking after that which is lost. So that at the end of Revelation, Jesus doesn't say, Behold, (laughs) I am scrapping all of the old marred stuff that I have made. I'm taking my work elsewhere and I'm going to do something different. Now your vision repeats what he says. Behold, I'm making all things new. All things. And you know when that started? Do you remember his first conversation, Jesus, with his disciples after his resurrection? They're in the upper room. His disciples are freaked out. They're scared to death. They think they're next to go to the cross. Jesus appears to him. You remember the first thing he does? (laughs) He breathes on them. He breathes on them. What is he doing? He's initiating new creation, new life into his people. This is new creation. In other words, following his lead as our king and our God, with his presence and his spirit-empowered breath now in us, we will finally work. We now can keep the creation the way he always intended. My friends, New City as a local church of Jesus Christ, your ultimate calling, the ultimate goal (laughs) is not simply to be a well-run organization with some Christian good ideas. (laughs) Are there ways that we can improve some communication? This is a disorienting time? Absolutely. And we're working on it. Trust me. (laughs) Are we called to be faithful with the resources God has entrusted to us? Absolutely at all times. But even in the midst of a disorienting time, the presence of the actual and specific brokenness in this world that you and I individually experience and face on a daily basis and that new city as a community collectively experiences is not an indication that we or God is failing, that somehow the track has gotten derailed. But rather, it's an opportunity and an arena in which we're given the opportunity to more fully lean into Jesus' work of recreation and his promise to make all things new. That's his promise. That's his promise. What if our specific calling right now is to demonstrate before a watching world, before neighbors, what it looks like to live by faith with genuine expectant hope that Jesus is actually in the process of recreation. That the things that are currently broken, marred, they are not the way they're supposed to be and Jesus is in fact doing something about them and he is actually commandeering us as his people to be a part of that process. the world, your neighbors here in Palm Bay don't need to meet a community that has all the answers, has it all together, (laughs) who have everything figured out. The greatest gift that we can give our neighbors is to be a people who even as we recognize our own brokenness, our own sin, our own, the ways we do not do not live up to our image-bearing vocation and calling. 
is that we have been saved. We have been redeemed. We have been recreated by the God who from all eternity has longed to be with his people and to lean into and to trust Jesus in the process. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that the truth is that despite the ways we have gone our own way, the fact, despite the ways that we have rebelled against you as our good creator, as despite the ways we have taken matters into our own hand, and how we ourselves, our own sin, our own rebellion, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, leads to the creation itself now groaning <laughs> for redemption. Despite that, you didn't leave us. You didn't turn your back. You actually came towards us. You moved in. Your desire is to dwell with us as your people to be here. And, and Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his promise that he's making all things new and his eventual return demonstrates that you are not yet done. You're not simply just scrapping what you've begun. But you intend fully recreate that one day we will be able to see in all its fulfillment when Jesus returns the fact that he has in fact made all things new. Jesus, we long for that day to see you again. In the meantime, grant us the courage, the faith to lean into that promise of yours to trust you in the process and know at the end of the day you mean good and you demonstrate that you can be trusted in your promise by actually coming, living and dying on our behalf in order that we might know perfect fellowship with you for all eternity. We praise things for Christ's sake. Amen.